0: We're going to be in, uh, well, we will be in several passages this morning, but we're going to start in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Uh, it's on page 886, if you want to use the Bible in the pew rack uh, in front of you. You know, as followers of Jesus, even as followers of Jesus, far too often we attempt to solve any situation or problem we face by ourselves. We feel as though we are equipped enough or smart enough, or capable enough, or we're experienced enough to figure out the situation and take care of it on our own. However, we're supposed to find a better way. We're meant to find a better way. And Jesus, when he was walking around with his disciples, teaching them and, and guiding them, he was instructing them in a better way to walk around this earth, to Live out this Christian life. And yet, as he's teaching these disciples who are going to go out and they end up leading the church and leading this massive Christian movement, we know so little about so few of the disciples. You know, we know the most, uh, the disciple we know the most about is Peter. We know that Peter was a fisherman, we know that Peter spoke often. Uh, uh, more often than not, sticking his foot in his mouth. We know that Peter denied Jesus three times. We know that Peter was restored by Jesus. We know that Peter led uh, uh, the Christian church in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And then church history tells us Peter was crucified upside down. But on the whole, that's about all we know about Peter. We know about John a little bit. John who wrote the Gospel of John. We know that John was a fisherman. Uh, We know that John didn't say a whole lot, at least that was written down. Uh, We know from the gospel of John, John was a fast runner. (laughs) He put that in there. Uh, We know uh, that John was the last disciple alive. At least that's what we believe. And we know that John received a vision from God and wrote down the book of Revelation. But that's about all we know about John. His brother James, we know a little bit, he was also a fisherman. James was in the inner circle with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They saw the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus revealing some of his glory. Uh, They got to see some special uh, things as the other disciples were doing other things. They got to go in this house when this little girl was raised back to life. Uh, They got to uh, be closer to Jesus as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's crucified. And then we know one other thing about James. He was the first disciple to die for his faith. In the book of Acts, he's beheaded, and then we've got you know these other guys that we don't know a whole lot about, even less than those Peter, James, and John. We know a little bit about Thomas. What do we know about Thomas? He 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 doubted. That's what he's known for, right? He asked. He actually asked in John chapter 14 a very famous question. He asked Jesus, "How do we or where do we? Where are you going? How do we know Jesus? Where you are going? How do we know the way?" where you were going. And Jesus' response was one of the most famous verses in all Scripture. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But you're right. Thomas is most famously known for doubting. However, all of the disciples doubted, right? When Jesus rose from the dead and Mary Magdalene came back to them and said, He's alive. I've seen him. All the disciples, Thomas wasn't there, or Thomas was there at that point, we believe. They said, we don't believe you. We won't believe you until we see it. And then sometime later on in the day, Thomas left, and the other ten disciples were still in the room. Jesus showed up in the room, and they could see him, they could touch him, they could talk to him. And then Jesus left, and then when Thomas came back, all the other disciples said, we saw him. Thomas said, I don't believe you. And eight days later, Scripture tells us, Thomas was in the room when Jesus showed up again, and he saw what the other disciples saw. And that's about all we know about Thomas. But how much do we know about the other guys? Guys like Thaddeus. You all know a lot about Thaddeus, right? All we know from scripture about Thaddeus is his name. That's it. Don't know much about uh, some of these other guys. You You know a lot about Judas. Judas Iscariot. But there was another Judas disciple. You all know a lot about him, right? The other Judas. Yeah, we don't know pretty much anything about him except his name. You know, there was another James who was a disciple besides this James. Peter, James, and John. He was called James the Less or James the Younger. We know nothing about him either. But there is another disciple that we really know one main thing about. And that's who we're going to look at today. So John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Now this John mentioned in this verse is not the John who wrote the gospel. This John is not... John, one of the disciples, John who received the revelation. This is John the Baptist here, one of Jesus' relatives. His mission was to go out and, and tell people to get ready because the Son of God's coming. Get your life ready. Son of God's coming. You better be prepared because when he shows up, you've got to follow him. And so that's what John the Baptist was out there doing. And as he did that, he gained some disciples of his own, guys who would follow him around and learn from him. And so what we're being told here in verse 35 is John the, D- the Baptist is standing there And he's got two of his disciples with him, and they're talking about something. Verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. So John the Baptist sees Jesus and tells his two disciples, there's the Son of God. There's the guy I've been telling you about. There's the Messiah walking by. Essentially, John the Baptist is saying, start following him. I've been preparing the way. I've been preparing you guys to get ready for the Son of God. There he is. Go after him. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So those two disciples of John the Baptist are now following Jesus, and they go and they spend the day with Jesus. And it says it was about the 10th hour. That's like 4 p.m. in that day and time at about 4 p.m., things, everything would start to shut down because you, you don't want to be outside after dark. Bad stuff happened after dark, uh, in, in, especially in that region of the country. And so they would start to get settled back in their home, get dinner ready, get everybody in. Uh, when the sun went down, you're inside you don't go out again. So it's about 4 p.m. It's time to shut everything down. And they're going to spend the rest of the evening with Jesus, which they do. And so they're hanging out with Jesus during all of this time. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So this is the guy we're going to focus on today. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. That's how he's defined, not just here, later on. This is Andrew, he's Simon Peter's brother. And now John, who's writing the gospel, not John the Baptist, Wants the people reading this to understand who this guy is. Because they would know Simon Peter. Simon Peter was the leader. Simon Peter was the guy uh, uh, who helped you know, facilitate and preach to everybody. Uh, but here he said, this is Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. A very important guy. Verse 41. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. So the very first thing, you notice that in verse uh, 41. He first found his brother Simon. As soon as Andrew finds the son of God, the very first thing he does is go and get his brother. The person closest to him, the person he loves greatly. He doesn't hesitate. He immediately runs and grabs the person closest to him and brings him to Jesus. He says, I found him. You're coming. He doesn't wait for a discussion. Uh, he doesn't, you know, have an argument. I know you're in the middle of dinner. We'll go after dinner. I know you're doing what you're doing. No, he just goes and grabs and says, you're coming, and we are going. Andrew says, this is the time. Now is it. We are going to Jesus. I'm bringing you to him. And so he does. He brings him to Jesus. And Peter goes, and honestly, the course of human history has changed in that moment. Because without Andrew, there is no Simon Peter. And without Simon Peter, who leads on the day of Pentecost, who knows where we would be today? Surely somebody else would have stood up, but it wouldn't look the same. It would have been different. It wouldn't have quite been the same, all because Andrew stepped up. Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. And it was because of his love for his brother, nothing was going to stop him from getting his brother to Jesus. He wasn't going to give up. He wasn't just even if even if Peter said no, not right now. He wasn't going to give up. He was going to continue working and get Peter to Jesus. I mean, everything we know about Peter, as often as he spoke up, as often as he put his foot in his mouth, as often as even you know resisting Jesus and had to be rebuked uh, when Jesus said, "Get behind me, Satan." You know, Peter wasn't the most compliant individual in the world. I know some of you parents. I know none of you have to deal with. Children who are never compliant, right? It's that kind of idea. And Andrew just grabs Peter, says, we're going. So, so far, that's what we know about Andrew. And they continue to follow Jesus for some time. Uh, They follow him, and and Jesus teaches them, and Jesus shows them things, and they see miracles. They see people raised from the dead. Uh, They see people who should not be able to be healed, get healed. Uh, People who've been to every doctor in the region, and the doctors say, you've got nothing that is going to fix you. You're just going to be this way until what you have, your disease, kills you. And then Jesus comes along and heals them. And so these guys, including Andrew and Peter, are seeing this all along the way. And they get to this one place in John chapter 6. So flip over. And Jesus is going to get to a spot, sit down, and he's going to teach. He's going to end up teaching what the other gospels tell us all day long. No bathroom breaks, no lunch breaks. He teaches all day long. And what we're going to read about is actually the the only miracle outside of the resurrection that is in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? So he speaks to another disciple, a guy named Philip, and he asked him, where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? There's lots of discussion in the commentaries about why he turns to Philip. What we believe is this area is very nearby where Philip grew up there's a city nearby we learn when Philip becomes a disciple uh, that was Philip's hometown and that's nearby this spot and so Jesus turns to Philip and says okay you're from here where can we buy bread that all these people can eat they've got we learn later probably somewhere in the region of 10 to 15 possibly 20,000 people out there and Jesus says where can we buy bread these people may eat now hang on I need some water The towns back then, particularly in this region, uh, the town nearby, is considerably smaller than Dequeen. But let's just for argument's sake say it's today in Dequeen. Jesus is here. He's teaching. 20,000 people show up. And Jesus turns to you and says, okay, where in Dequeen can we buy bread for 20,000 people? You immediately start thinking, okay, the bread aisle at Walmart does not have enough the, the bread aisle at Pruitt's. Uh, if we got all the bread from Walmart, all the bread from Pruitt's, even wipe the bakery, we're not feeding 20,000 people. <laughs> like there's there's, just, there's not enough bread to to, to to accomplish what you're asking me. But this is Jesus. you Jesus, son of God, giving you a question. How can you get this done for me? What are, What thoughts are running through your head? But Philip, the thought running through his head is not, there's no place that has enough bread for this. Look at where he turns immediately. Verse, well, start in verse six. He said, Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse seven, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 200 denarii, denarius was one day's worth of work. And so Philip tells Jesus, if we worked for eight months... That's taken into consideration like, you know, weekends and holidays. It works out to about eight months. If we worked for eight months, Jesus, we could not pay enough for everybody even just to have a nibble. When it says to get a little, he's talking about just a nibble, not even a bite. Just, just a little tiny, like when you tell your kid, take a big old bite and they just take a little bite. and They don't, like have the hot dog, and don't even get the, you know, the hot dog. They just get the bread kind of, just, everybody just to get a little nibble. He said, we don't have enough money for all of them just to get a nibble. Probably he's thinking, Jesus, we don't have enough money for us to eat, much less feed 20,000 people. He said, going to work, Jesus. So Philip starts thinking about money here. But you notice in Jesus' question, Jesus didn't ask how much money it would take to fulfill his request. He said, where shall we buy enough bread? The focus is on the where. The focus is on the source where that's where the focus is philip instantly turns to money but jesus didn't ask about money let's look at what happens next verse 8 one of his disciples andrew simon peter's brother said to him there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish but what are they for so many So whereas Philip starts thinking about money as a source, Andrew has gone to the crowd for the source. And all he can find in the crowd is a little kid's lunchbox. He's got some loaves, he's got some fish. says, this is all we have. There's no way this is feeding 15, 20,000 people. Because look at what he says. Even uh, he found this as a source, the last thing he said was, but what are they for so many? Even what he found, he did not consider it to be enough. However, Andrew did the right thing. Andrew did what he had already done back in chapter 1. What does Andrew do? He brings the boy to Jesus. He brings the boy to Jesus. The boy, now some, I've heard some guys describe this as like a picture of Andrew wrestling this lunch away from the kid. That's not the way it's presented in the scripture. It's almost as though the little boy is bringing it as an offering. And Andrew takes that offering and does the right thing. Brings it to Jesus. But even in bringing it to Jesus, he doesn't think it's enough even for Jesus to do something with. But what are they for so many? Even for you, Jesus, son of God, the the, the, the source here, yes, I've seen you raise people from the dead. Yes, I've seen you heal lepers. Yes, I've seen you make the blind see. But what, what can you do with this to feed all of this? Sometimes when you're looking at what you have in comparison to what you need it to do, it never seems enough but we need to do what Andrew did not what Andrew said what Andrew did and bring what we have to Jesus and watch what he can do with it so Andrew brings this to Jesus brings the boy to Jesus and Jesus says in verse 10 have the people sit down now there was much grass in the place so the men sat down about 5,000 in number Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the crowd saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So they're amazed at what Jesus has done. But it all begins because Andrew brought the boy to Jesus. At at John chapter 1, Andrew brings someone who's close to him to Jesus. Here in John chapter 6, Andrew brings somebody who's nearby, his lunch buddy, this kid. He brings somebody nearby to Jesus. And Jesus does the miraculous. Jesus does an incredible miracle here. And just as a point of note, it never says how Jesus performed the miracle. It never even says when exactly the miracle happened. I mean, did Jesus break the bread as he's thanking God for it and bread just starts shooting out from the bread he's already got? Or did these baskets they have start filling up? Or that as kind of like in, in the Old Testament with the prophets and they had uh, uh, the widow in the house and she continued to fill these jars up with the oil, maybe as they passed out the bread and the fish, more got replenished in the baskets? We don't know. But I think that's the point we're not supposed to know how we're just supposed to know who Jesus did it Jesus did the miracle because Andrew brought the boy to Jesus and as they continued in the the service of Jesus these disciples over the next months and possibly a year or so after that instance there's one more Experience with Andrew that we have. Flip over to John chapter twelve, down in verse. uh, Well, let's start in verse seventeen. This is the last week before Jesus' crucifixion. This actually, what we're going to start with actually takes place uh, on the Sunday, Palm Sunday. Jesus uh, comes into town riding. Uh, uh, on the colt of a donkey. And everybody's, you know, praising him, Hosanna. Hosanna is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they come into town, palm branches being waved like a king. And we have this uh, a scene laid out starting in verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. Now, I want to set the stage on this. Just across the hill from Jerusalem is the town where Lazarus was from. And in the previous chapter, John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And the people who were there when Lazarus was raised from the dead wasn't just Jesus and the disciples. There was a crowd there. We believe from the descriptions that we have, Lazarus and Mary and Martha were a pretty popular group and they were well known. So when Lazarus is raised from the dead, not just Jesus and the disciples, but the crowd from the city was there and they observed this. But pay attention to this verse. The crowd that had seen Lazarus raised from the dead, they bore witness. The crowd in scripture is used to describe typically people who are not believers. The believers are followers. The believers are disciples. The crowd ends up as described, actually in the book of John in a previous section, the crowd leaves Jesus. But here it's the crowd who's testifying. The crowd is testifying because of what Jesus did through the life of Lazarus. It's so obvious that Jesus' hand was in Lazarus that the unbelievers couldn't help but talk about it. So the crowd is bearing witness, verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so the Pharisees, Jesus' opponents, these guys, these self-proclaimed enemies of Jesus, say, it looks like the whole world has gone after him, has followed him. It looks like everybody that is in Jerusalem is following Jesus, is listening to Jesus, is, is pursuing Jesus. However, in among those going after Jesus was a very interesting set of people. Verse 20. Now among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So some Greeks came and said, we wish to see Jesus. Now, to understand a little bit of the context of first century you know, Judea, you have to understand, and, and, and we can get some semblance of it in modern America, but the underlying vein of racism that existed. Whereas it's bad in places in America. And, and you experience it still, even walking through the Queen. But first century Judea, it was everywhere. Like like maybe some instances of the way America was some decades ago, but if you came as a Greek, as a Gentile, to the Jewish market, Jews didn't sell to you. They would say things to you, they would kick at you, they would throw stuff. At you. And Jews did the same back to the Greeks. Greeks thought they were better than Jews. Jews thought they were better than Greeks and they hated each other. But it wasn't just two groups. It was a whole bunch of groups. Like if you weren't from my group, I hated you because we didn't like anybody. If you weren't us, God didn't like you. And so that's the way they all treated each other. That's the way they all thought. If a Jew walked into the Greek section of the city, there was major problems. They'd get jumped. They'd get heckled. They'd get beat up and cast out if they made it out at all. And so in the midst of this climate, Jesus is walking and talking, is interacting, is bringing the gospel. And so these Greeks want so desperately to know about Jesus that all of that racial issue that is there, they bypass that fear and follow the curiosity they have about Jesus. And so they approach Philip. One of the Jews with Jesus. Now, again, there's a lot of speculation about why they approach Philip. Philip has a Greek name, even though Philip is a Jew. But they approach Philip, and they ask him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So you would think then, Philip, one of the disciples of Jesus, would grab these guys, these Greeks, and would take them to Jesus. But that's not what Philip does. Philip doesn't take these guys to Jesus. Look at what Philip does. Verse 22. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew went, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So Philip brings the request, not to Jesus, brings it to Andrew. Andrew, who so far, the two times that we've seen Andrew, is known for bringing people to Jesus. Philip, who we don't know much about, except that he was thinking about money when Jesus made a request of him, brings this request to Andrew. So what should I do, Andrew? What should I do? I mean, these people want to see Jesus, but the Greeks, Andrew, you know, I mean, I know we've been with Jesus and we're supposed to like it, love everybody. Jesus said, love the whole world and all this, but, 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 but Andrew, they're Greeks. Like, they're, they're Greeks, Andrew, and we're in the middle of the Passover. And if we're in the middle of the Passover and, and, and the Jews in town see us walking around with the Greeks and bringing Greeks to Jesus, then when, when the climate's already heated and, and we add in the racial component, this is going to be a problem. And he brings the, the, the request to Andrew. And what is Andrew's response? Let's take him to Jesus. Doesn't question, doesn't hesitate, doesn't say, hey, let's get a consensus. Let's gather all the disciples together let's vote on it. Now he says, no, let's just let's go straight to Jesus. Let's stop this talking about it. Let's stop, stop this issue. They want to see Jesus. Anybody can come see Jesus. Let's take him to Jesus. So Andrew brings it to Jesus. And Jesus answered in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now that statement is vitally important. Because up to this point, Jesus continually tells people, when there's a miracle, don't tell anybody about it because my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And it's not until the Greeks come and want to know about Jesus as the Messiah that Jesus said, now the hour has come. Now is the time for glorification. Now it's time to be crucified because the world is coming to find salvation, irregardless of social background, irregardless of race, irregardless of anything, everyone can come to Jesus and find salvation. And so Jesus says, now is the time for glorification. So what do we see with the life of Andrew? Andrew first brought somebody close to him to Jesus. Then Andrew brought Somebody who was nearby to Jesus. And then here in John 12, Andrew brought an outsider to Jesus. His response always with anybody in any situation, any circumstance, bring people to Jesus. And honestly, that's why we have this prayer pew here to begin with. Bringing people to Jesus. Write names on the prayer pew, people who need to come to Jesus. So the question for you then to begin with is who is your Peter? Someone who's close to you. Who needs Jesus? Who then is your lunch buddy, like the little boy, someone who's nearby you, who needs Jesus? Who are your outsiders, people who may be curious about Jesus, but they're not like the disciples? Who are people you need to bring to Jesus? Come and write their names on the pew, because grace is for everybody. It's been on our bulletin forever. Grace is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. And we know the Great Commission that we talked about several weeks ago. Make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of everybody. Bring everybody to Jesus. Everybody to Jesus. Even even people you may not like very much, bring them to Jesus. Even people you don't know about very much, bring them to Jesus. Even people that other people are talking about and saying all these rumors about and saying all this gossip about, you don't know if any of that mess is true. All you know is everybody needs Jesus. So you bring them to Jesus. Jesus. But a key component in bringing people to Jesus that is often overlooked, that is often, honestly, the enemy often distracts us from, is that bringing people to Jesus needs to be preceded by bringing ourselves to Jesus. We can look around and say, oh, yeah, that person needs Jesus. Yeah, that person, that person really needs Jesus. They need all kinds of Jesus up in their life to take care of their business. But how often do we not bring ourselves to Jesus? We say, oh, I'm good. You know, I know I need Jesus, and, and, and I read my Bible, and I do this stuff, and I know it, but they, they really need Jesus. And, and so I'm going to go, and, and, you know, I know it's difficult, and, and I'm fearful sometimes, but I know they need Jesus. But we often neglect bringing ourselves to Jesus. Like really, transparently bringing ourselves to Jesus. We're so quick to say, yeah, I'm good. Or somebody say, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good. When we're not. Whether we're hiding it or, or more often than not, we don't even realize the weight that is weighing down on us. Because we're so busy doing other things. And seeing the need in other people's lives of them needing Jesus that we don't see it in ourselves. But similar to the airplane safety speech, we should not neglect putting on our own oxygen mask. We need Jesus. We've got to bring ourselves to Jesus. Let me take you to one more scripture. Psalm 91. Is this in there, Alyssa? I can't remember if I added it. It's not. The Lord added this one late. Psalm 91. Just the first couple verses. I would encourage you to to read the whole thing, the whole psalm, all 16 verses. But we're just going to focus on the first two. The psalmist writes, He who dwells in the shelter of of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now I want to point out some of the words in those two verses. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. He who dwells, that means to remain, who stays there. In the shelter of the Most High. Shelter means secret hiding place of great protection. How many of us need a shelter? A secret hiding place of great protection. Will, the person who dwells, who remains in the shelter, secret hiding place of great protection of the Most High, will abide In the shadow of the Almighty. The idea of that word abide is spend the night. Stays with on a continual day-to-day basis. We'll abide in the shadow of the Almighty. You're so close to the Lord God that you're in his shadow. Verse 2, he says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. Those two words are the ones I want to hit home for you. Refuge means my secure and safe place of refuge that cannot be touched by danger. God is my refuge, my secure and safe place that cannot be touched by danger. He calls him my fortress, impenetrable mountain stronghold. And so when we run to Jesus, when we run to the Lord, we're supposed to find refuge in him. The secure and safe place that cannot be touched by danger. But the problem is, we, we put on, at times, Christian, the air of running to Jesus, the appearance of running to Jesus, when we're really holding back. We may even be reading our Bible every day, but we're not taking it in, we're not applying it, we're not ingesting it, almost as though it's checking the box, like on the Bible app. It feels good having all the boxes checked when we do our reading plan, but it's not Sinking in. I give you an illustration using myself. A few weeks ago, an issue came up. It required a lot of attention. It, it went on for four days. A lot of attention, phone calls, texts, on into the evenings. Um, I was reading my Bible every day, and this thing was brought a lot of anxiety with it, a lot of issues. I finally got it resolved, but um, in the in that in between, you know, uh, it started like on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, i working on my sermon throughout the week, reading my scripture for my own quiet time throughout the week. I get to Thursday, and uh, I thought everything was good all week long, you know, because I was reading my Bible. I was praying all week long. But I get to Thursday that week, and I talk through my sermon, kind of working through it. Uh, and after that, it's like there's a, a, a release like a weight had been lifted because I took the message. You see, I don't, I don't, y'all aren't preachers, you wouldn't know. I preach this deal to myself a lot before I get in here, whether out loud, but it sinks into my heart. Otherwise, I couldn't say it to you. It's got to apply to me first. And so I got to the end of that, and I kind of sat down because I didn't real, realize the weight that was weighing from Sunday to Thursday. I didn't realize it was there. I thought I was good. Man, I'm the pastor of the church. Man, I'm reading my Bible every day. I'm praying every day. I got my prayer journal and I'm working through it and I'm going through all this stuff. I'm counseling. I'm offering up this, somebody calling about this, about scripture. What does this mean? All the while this weight was there that I didn't realize was was a blockage. I wasn't bringing myself to Jesus and didn't realize that I wasn't bringing myself to Jesus. How often do we do that as American Christians? Put up the front, put up the church shirt, I feel good, how are you doing today? I'm good, I'm blessed, I'm all good. But in reality, there's a turmoil that's there. There's a weight that's there that we may not even realize is. Until Jesus breaks in. And we got to peel that back. And we got to be open and honest and transparent before Jesus. James chapter 5 tells us to confess to one another what we're going through, what we're experiencing, and allow healing to come. It can only come when preceded by the confession. When we realize that maybe we don't have it all together. Maybe we do need to find, uh, here in, in Psalm 91, we need to find that refuge in jesus that secure and safe place that impenetrable mountain stronghold find in him you know what there's actually one more scripture i want to take find in him what we need for that day for that moment for that experience we need to bring ourselves to jesus As we look around and bring other people to Jesus, we've got to be bringing ourselves to Jesus. Because if we're not bringing ourselves to the feet of Jesus, we're going to find ourselves in a situation that will cripple us. Because we're not ready. Because we're not turning to him. We're turning to our own experience. We're turning to our own knowledge. We're turning to our own gut instinct. And we're not finding in that enough. Because it's not designed to be enough. God's never going to give you a life where you don't need him. You've got to always turn to him. Find refuge in him. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So that's the problem we face. We're turning to so many other things to find refuge and only find more turmoil, only find more problems, only find more issues, or in today's culture, only find more distraction. I just need to clear my head. So I'm going to binge this for a while. I just need to, to doom scroll for a little bit and just get my mind off of that deal. And before you know it, you're hour, two hours down the road and nothing else has been accomplished and you're not better for having done it. You actually feel worse. The weight is heavier. Because as Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength. All that other stuff sucks the strength out of us we got to find our refuge and strength, our refuge, a safe and secure place in Jesus and nowhere else. And so as we look around and see people, and we ought to be writing names on this prayer pew about people we need to be bringing to Jesus. As we look forward to the month of September, we're going to be praying super intently, month of October, having these these evangelistic meetings where we gather and bring people to Jesus. We need to be bringing ourselves to Jesus at every point, every moment. Bringing ourselves to Jesus clearly, transparently. We need to be coming to Jesus ourselves. But as we come, we need to be bringing as many people as possible as we can. Never putting on airs. Never, and in the same regard, never assuming somebody else has it all together. As we look at their lives compared to our lives and we feel like we're You know, losing it, and they've got it all pieced together, and and, and it looks all nice and neat. I just blow that out of the water. Nobody's got it together. Nobody. Everybody's got problems. Everybody's got issues, some you don't know about, but everybody has them. Some are deeply rooted. Some are generational. Some are constant that are weighing down that they can't get through. So never assume somebody's got it all together, because in reality, we all need Jesus. And so as we come to Jesus, bring ourselves to Jesus, and we desperately need to be brought to Jesus, all of us, we got to be bringing everybody else to Jesus. Everybody to Jesus. Somebody gives you, you know, attitude. Somebody gives you a bad day. Somebody, you know, really messes stuff up, maybe at school or at work or at Walmart, and you don't know how to handle it. All you should be thinking is, man, I can't stand that person. No, all you should be thinking is, they need Jesus just like I do. I don't know what they're going through, but I know They need to be brought to Jesus. Maybe Jesus put me in their path to be the one to bring them. Everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs to be brought to Jesus. So are you willing to bring that person to Jesus, whether that person is close to you, like Peter with Andrew, that person is nearby, like the the kid in the crowd with Andrew, or maybe that, that person is an outsider, like Andrew, bringing the Greeks. Whatever it is, bring them to Jesus. But even in the process... Never fail to bring yourself to Jesus. Bring yourself to Jesus. because you know, Just imagine what would happen if every one of you people in this room, all those people watching online, if we took this for real and began just, just next seven days, started bringing ourselves to Jesus in absolute transparency and honesty and legit, bringing ourselves to Jesus, how would this community change? Just in seven days, if we were all for real about this thing, for real. Or there's a, there's a great quote from 150 years ago talking about the ministry of D.L. Moody, this great evangelist. He said, 99 Christians out of 100 are just playing at being a Christian, just playing at it. What would it look like if 100% of the people in this room took it for real just for seven days? how would this community be turned on its head if we begin to bring ourselves and everyone around us to Jesus? Y'all pray with me. God, I thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for guys like Andrew who is known singularly for bringing people to Jesus. I pray that would be our lasting legacy, known for bringing people to Jesus. Like even when somebody comes to Philip, he came to Andrew because Andrew's the guy who brings people to Jesus. And as we do, God, as we're bringing people to Jesus, that we would be continually aware of our own personal hearts. Knowing full well that we are in desperate need of Jesus ourselves. And we would bring ourselves to Jesus. And as we come, bring everybody with us as we possibly can. Because we're all on the journey together. God, I thank you. Thank you. That you came for us. Thank you that you called John the Baptist. And John the Baptist called Andrew. And Andrew was called by Jesus. And then Andrew called Peter. God, I pray we would do the same today. We would be bringers in every sense of the word. In your name I pray, amen. Y'all stand up. So, look, if you need to make a decision for Jesus, if you need to believe Jesus, Son of God, died so all your sins would be forgiven, rose from the dead so you can live after you die, if if you need to believe that, we'd love to talk to you. Pastor Jared's right back there in the back. I'm right here at the front. We'd love to talk to you. If you need to come down here to the prayer pew and begin to write some more names on this deal, names of somebody close to you. Somebody nearby, somebody who's an outsider, write the name here. If you need to come down here, write your name on this pew and say, I need to bring myself to Jesus. I know him, but I've had this weight that's been hanging over me, and I need to bring myself. You come and write your name. You come down here and pray.